If you've got a Bible with you this morning, you want to go ahead and open it up to 2 Kings chapter 22. If you don't have a hard copy with you and you want to do so on your phone, uh, we're going to read together a significant portion of 2 Kings 22 and in pieces in, in chapter 23 as well. Uh, and so I w- you're going to want to be able to follow along, I think. And so if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, uh, I'm going to give you uh, an extended introduction here and you can download a Bible app to your phone and you'll have that by the time we actually get into it. Um, I have this thing that I like to do uh, in my free time, I guess, and it's uh, that every once in a while I will get like deep down a rabbit hole of YouTube videos that include like a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old child on a television talent show like America's Got Talent uh, singing or doing uh, ventriloquism. Or the other day I saw a girl that was a ventriloquist that sang, and it was like really amazing. Um, I have a friend that when I get into this, he knows that I find like child prodigy kind of things fascinating. I will start sending him links to videos like you need, you need to watch this one. It's the best one I've ever seen. It's just like all the other ones, Tim. Um, I do. I, I'm like somewhat fascinated by uh, children that have amazing ability. And I think it's because at 31 years old, uh, the older I get as I, as I grow and age and mature, I, just, I get a clearer understanding of my own limitations. And so when I see someone really young who can do something so amazing, it really captivates my attention. And children doing those kinds of things is nothing new. It's just that the internet makes it possible for us to see many more of them than we used to be able to. Uh, Mozart wrote his first piece of music when he was five years old. By the time he was eight, he was writing symphonies. Pablo Picasso began painting when he was nine. And, And when I say painting, I don't mean like the same kind of painting you hang on your refrigerator that your child does. That's not to discount your child's painting ability, but Picasso was selling them by the time he was nine. And throughout his career, he sold over 22,000 pieces of artwork beginning at the age of nine years old. He relates this interaction he had with his mom once. His mom said, if you become a soldier, you'll be a general. If you become a monk, you'll be the pope. To which Pablo Picasso, reflecting backward, said, instead, I became a painter and I wound up Picasso. Tiger Woods started playing golf when he was two years old. By the time he was three, he was chipping and putting against Bob Hope on national television. He shot under 80 in a full round of golf on a regulation golf course before he was eight years old. If you've ever played golf, you understand how fascinating that is. I say all of that to say this. It's that young people have been doing amazing things all throughout history. And when it happens, it catches our attention. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to introduce us in scripture to a young person who does something quite remarkable. His name is Josiah. He is the final uh, good king in Judah, the southern kingdom. In chapters 22 and 23 of 2 Kings, we get the story of Josiah's reign. He becomes king when he's eight years old. Eight. And not only does he just become king at a young age, but he leads Judah through an amazing time of revival and recommitment to following the Lord. And so this is the way that Josiah is introduced to us. This is the first two verses of 2 Kings chapter 22. It says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn to the right or to the left. Last week we talked about this split that takes place in uh, Israel among God's people. And ten tribes come together in the north. They call themselves Israel. Two tribes come together in the south. They are the kingdom of Judah. Nineteen kings reign in the north in Israel. None of them are good. Two kings are... Uh, 20 kings reign in the south, and a handful of them are classified as good. Josiah is one of those. He gets this tag. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David, his father. That term father meaning that he's in the family line of David. It's not actually David's biological son. And it says he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. What we're going to do this morning is just follow over two chapters Uh, the story of the life of Josiah. We're going to read most of it word for word. It's powerful, and it's instructive, and and all I'm going to do is pull out a couple of truths here as we go along. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 3 of chapter 22. It says this, In the 18th year of King Josiah, he's 26 at that point. I don't do math very well. I spent all week making sure I got that number correct. In the 18th year of King Josiah... The king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, the secretary of the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight over the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked uh, from them for the money that is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. Here's the first point I want to make, and I want this to run in the background as we talk this morning, because as we continue on, you're going to see the reality of this in the life of King Josiah, and it's this, that religious activity is different than soul-saving faith. What's happening is that Josiah, 26 years old, he's been king for a long time already, 18 years, and something prompts him to go about this work of repairing the temple in Jerusalem. And so he sends the secretary of the temple to the high priest to say, hey, take the money that's been collected, distribute it to the workers, allow them to purchase whatever they need so that they can repair the temple of the Lord, which sounds like a very great thing, right? I want to kind of cut through a little bit of that before we go forward. I think what Josiah is doing is a great thing to repair the temple, but I think it's mostly motivated out of tradition and religious obligation. Here we have in our city, Jerusalem, a giant temple that's falling into disrepair. I suppose we should probably do something about it. Use the money that's there to fix the temple. Tradition, religious obligation. Some of you might be here this morning for similar reasons. You're here this morning because this is what we do. We live at the very northern tip of the Bible Belt. Most people that live around here still go to church, or if they don't go to church, they would at least vocalize, I should go to church more. That's kind of the culture that we live in. You show up, you're just kind of along for the ride because you don't think there's a lot in it for you. And you just take part, you observe, you watch 
what happens here. The reality is, church attendance is not going to save anyone at the end of all things. Religious activity is not going to save a person. When you die or Jesus returns and you stand before the Lord in your moment of judgment, there's not going to be some tallying of the Sundays you went to church versus the Sundays you didn't go to church. And as as long as one outweighs the other, then you're going to spend eternity with him. That's not how it's going to happen. In fact, if we can push a little bit further, it's also not going to work that say you did go to church every Sunday, but on about half of those, you even volunteered. You worked back in the children's ministry, or you helped out at the coffee bar, or you helped with parking, or greeting people, or you were on the worship team. No amount of that is also going to save you. The only thing that's going to save you is not religious activity. It's not cleaning up the temple. What's going to save you is soul-saving faith in Jesus Christ. Your heart needs to be able to proclaim, not just your mouth, that in all your sorrows, Jesus is better. That in all of your victories, Jesus is better. In all of your comfort, Jesus is better. In all of your riches, Jesus is better. My soul declaring, my song eternal, Jesus is better. Before the Lord, all of the religious activity is going to be stripped away. And it's going to either be that your heart has staked its hope and its identity and all of its worth on that truth that Jesus Christ is better than all of those things, or it hasn't. And because of your faith, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection has either paid the price and covered the reality of your sin, or it hasn't. No amount of service at VBS, which is a wonderful thing, and I encourage you to do because they could still use volunteers, No amount of service at VBS or no amount of week-long mission trips, no amount of small group leadership is going to be the thing that saves you. There's a difference, an eternal difference between religious activity and soul-saving faith. Let's go on. Here's what happens next. Verse 8, and Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, gave, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. second point I want to make this morning is that revival, and I use that word broadly, whether that's personal revival, to revive something is to take it from seemingly dead to alive. Revival, personally in the life of an individual, corporately in the life of a church, nationally or globally in the life of masses of people, it begins with God's word. I don't necessarily mean that somebody sits down and they have a Bible and they're able to read it beginning to end and in so doing they realize their sin and their need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. I mean that revival, death to life, has to come through the truth of the Word of God that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Romans 10, Paul says, how will they know unless they have been told? 
whether it's through reading scripture or through hearing someone proclaim the gospel, revival, death to life, begins with the truth of God's word. And what happens here is that Hilkiah is working in some dusty corner of the temple and he discovers the book of the law. And by book of the law, it likely means either all of or some portion of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he's, he's working there in the temple and he stumbles upon it and he opens it up and he reads it and he's the high priest and so he at least has some knowledge of what should be in there even though apparently no one's read it for a long time because he's so shocked by it. He goes back to Shaphan, who's been the intermediary between Josiah the king and Hilkiah the high priest and he says, you need to take this to the king. And so Shaphan reads it. All of it. And then he goes back to the king and he gives a report. Hey, the money's been distributed. Stuff's happening in the temple. It's a good thing. Also, uh, side note, we, we found a thing. We, we found a thing in the temple. I'd like to read it to you now. And so that's what he does. Beginning to end. If you were to sit down and read the book of Genesis beginning to end, it would probably take you two or three hours If he's got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they maybe sat there all day and they read the word of God. And that is where revival begins. Now, let me show you what the word of God does from this point forward. Look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That's significant. Tearing robes or tearing clothes in the Old Testament is this sign of grief and humility and repentance. We've seen it already a number of times throughout Scripture, the most prominent of those being in the book of Job. It's maybe the one that you might remember most. Everything has been taken from Job, his family, his possessions, and all of his belongings. His health has been taken. He's got boils on his skin, and he's sitting on what is essentially like a pile of ashes, and he's scraping off his boils with a shard of pottery, and he's torn his clothes in humility and grief and repentance before the Lord. It's always this public thing. He sits there, his wife sees him, his friends arrive, and they see him sitting there on this pile of ashes with his robes torn. And in this instance, it's the king. If, if anyone doesn't need to be humble, it's a king. And yet there he is in front of Hilkiah, in front of Shaphan, in front of whoever else happened to be there. And there's the king, robes torn. That's because the word of God is humility inducing. That's what it does. It brings us to a place of humility. Because as we read the word of God, we discover the reality of who God is. And the more clearly we see who God is, the more correctly we see ourselves. And what King Josiah understands is that himself and all of his people are in big, big trouble because they have not been faithful and obedient to the Lord. And there's this moment of absolute humility. I see who God is. And I'm understanding who we are. I'm also understanding that there's likely going to be some punishment there. It elicits this response. He tears his robes. I want to press into this one a little bit more as well because we live in this kind of Western cultural Christianity kind of mess here in suburban America. When you read throughout Scripture, when you read in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a nominal Christian. They don't exist. 
There's no such thing as a cultural Christian in the Bible. You don't see people who would articulate their reason for faith as being, well, my family has always been Christian, and so I was born a Christian. You don't see that. There's no uh, kind of consumer Christians in the Bible who slip into a large church and sit in the back and hope to just take it all in and then leave and go about their life. That doesn't exist in Scripture. Nominal Christians, cultural Christians, consumer Christians, that's not a thing in the Bible. It's also not a thing in most countries around the world. Try to imagine something with me. Try to imagine a person in Iraq who just casually gets up one day and decides, I'm going to walk over to the house church, risking my life. And I'm just going to sit in the back and kind of take it all in. And then I'm just going to leave. But I'll keep coming back every week because it makes me feel good inside even though I understand that should I be caught at any point along the trip there, I could be killed. That doesn't exist. We live in a place that has amazing, blessed freedom to worship the Lord. And that is a wonderful thing. But what it does is it clouds our ability to separate I can go and worship from I want to go and worship. It makes it difficult for us to separate the feelings of I guess I'll get up and go to church because that's what I should do from I would give my life to be able to go and worship the Lord. It makes it hard to separate those two things. When we hear the word of God in America, it's not really humility inducing. It's like nice stories from a book we all kind of know. And we say, hmm, yeah, maybe that's true. But something's happened here where For some period of time, at least 26 years, because it appears to be the first time Josiah's ever heard these words, but likely further back than that, because there's been a reign of of some pretty terrible kings in Judah, no one's heard the word of the Lord. And so he sits down and he hears it, and it just drops him to his knees. He tears his robes. That's what the Lord's doing in other countries, where they don't have easy access to the gospel. And they're hearing the truth of who God is. They're hearing the word of God and it's moving them to humble repentance. It's humility inducing for them. Where they would arrive at a place where they would say truthfully and honestly from the depth of their heart, no matter what sorrow might come as a result of my faith, Jesus is better. Our Western cultural kind of Christianity mindset is, in all my victory, Jesus was kind of helpful. In all of my comfort, I guess Jesus was present. In all of my riches, Jesus was kind of one of them I tacked onto the side. That's not humble. That's super arrogant. The word of God is humility inducing. We hear it and it drops us to our knees. We tear our robes in front of him because we've seen the reality of who God is. And that means now we're seeing ourselves a little more correctly as well. Let's go on. Verse 12. And the king commanded Hilkiah and a string of people whose names are hard to say. (laughs) Jump down to verse 13. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. 
to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and a string of people went to this prophetess. And then she says this in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. That's Josiah. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent or repentant, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. The word of God is humility-inducing. It's also time-transcending. Josiah hears something that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before it was read to him. That punishment would come if the Israelites were not faithful to this covenant promise that God had made with them. And Josiah hears that, and he's looking around, and he understands, okay, we've not been faithful to that. There's a prophetess over there. Will you guys go to her and have her inquire of the Lord, is this still true? And they go, and they find out, yes. This is still going to happen. Times have changed. Seasons have passed. But the word of the Lord does not change. And it's going to come to pass. It transcends time. That's why we can read scripture today and it's still applicable. It's still meaningful. It still quickens our heart rate at times. It still contains the words of life. And praise the Lord that it's time transcending because Jesus died a couple thousand years ago, but his death is still sufficient for me. The truth of that still matters for me. All of scripture is time Transcending, 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, Peter quotes from Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. To put that into the words of a friend of mine from a movie, Sandlot, forever. The word of the Lord is time transcending. It is humility inducing. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. The author wants you to understand that everyone was there. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. You listened to me for like 30 minutes. He read the whole thing while they stood there. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. The word of God is life-changing. Something has changed here for Josiah. This isn't about just cleaning up the temple, doing some religious activity anymore. This has changed who he is, and he wants to stand in front of all of his people, have them hear the same thing, and then make a commitment to the Lord in front of them. And like we saw last week with the kings of Israel, as the king goes, 
so go the king's people. And they say, you're making that commitment, we'll make that commitment. And there's repentance and there's confession. This isn't about religious activity anymore for Josiah. This is about personal relationship with the Lord. He has seen the reality of that in Scripture and it has changed his life. And what happens in verses 14, or 4 through 14 in chapter 23, I'm not going to read it because I don't have time, is that they go sweeping throughout all of Judah, Josiah and Hilkiah and all the people of Judah, and they start tearing down the altars and the high places of various gods and false idols. In fact, the text says that they're crushing them to powder. They're eliminating swiftly everything that was given over to false worship in all of the land of Judah. That's because the word of God isn't just humility-inducing. It's not just time-transcending. It's not just life-changing. It's culture-shaping. And what's happening inside of them, they want to make sure happens outside of them as well. And so this life change that's happened inside of them, they start to manifest outside of themselves. And they're just swiftly and fully dealing with everything that was ever given over to worship of something else. And imagine the commitment and accountability that would have come from that. You've got a neighbor who starts to rebuild a little altar to some false god. You'd probably lovingly go over there, not to induce any shame, but just to say, hey, we've heard about where this leads. We're not doing that anymore. Don't you remember what we heard at the temple that day? Let's grind this thing to powder. Isn't that the way the church should work? When we see each other stumble into sin, not in a shame-inducing way, but in a loving, encouragement, and accountability sort of way, we say, hey, I know where this leads. And it breaks my heart to think that you might go down that path. Let's Let's grind this thing to powder and have it be gone. It's culture shaping. Verses 15 to 20, an even more remarkable thing happens. Do you remember Jeroboam? He took two golden calves. He was the first king in Israel, and he put one in a city called Bethel and one in a city called Dan. We talked about that last week. And he said to the Israelite people, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem anymore. Here are your gods. You can worship them. Israel has since been carried into exile already by this point. The Assyrians have come in, wiped out the Israelite people, carried them out of the promised land, forced them uh, to live other places, scattered them all over the place. And Josiah, sitting in Jerusalem, says, we're going to Bethel. We're going into Assyrian territory, and we're tearing down that altar as well. That's because the word of God is outward facing. It's never just been about one place or one group of people. It's always been about the world being blessed through the seed of Abraham. It's always been about all of the world coming to a true worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And as Assyria is ruling in this territory just to his north, Josiah says, I've been so changed by the word, I want to go there as well. And make sure we help them understand what it means to worship the true God. It's outward facing. The same thing should happen to us when we become captivated by the word of the Lord. I want to read 2 Kings 23, verses 25 through 27. This is the last point I want to make. Before him, that's Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses 
nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from his burning with great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, that's a previous king, had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. The word of God is hope-inspiring. The only hope that Josiah has at this moment is that he's not going to live to see the exile. God has said, you'll die before it happens. You won't have to endure it. That's the only hope that Josiah has there. But I want you to imagine something with me. You live in a small country town. There's a dying church there. The building has fallen into disrepair, and so you volunteer some time to go in and clean it up. And while you're doing so, you're down in the basement and you find a Bible. And you begin reading a little bit, and you think to yourself, I wonder if the pastor's ever heard this. So you go to the pastor, and you sit down with that individual, and over the course of a week or so, you begin unpacking the Word of God, and you're reading through the Old Testament, and you're seeing God's righteous and just anger against the sin of humanity because He's holy, and because He loves us, and He wants a relationship with us. And you're also hearing Him talking about the fact that there's a Messiah, a Savior, who's going to come, who's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And then you flip the page to the New Testament. And there's this man, Jesus, who's born. And with him come the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that God made in the Old Testament. With him comes the chance for salvation. I mean, imagine the feeling that you would have there because the word of God is just inspired hope that you are not left to the darkness and the brokenness of your own sin. That there's something that could come in that could change that. Maybe let's imagine a different scene, one that likely actually plays out in homes all across our own town. And it's that there's a Bible that sits somewhere in your house on a shelf or an end table and it's dusty. And you clean it off one day because you've decided to make a commitment to start to read the word of God for yourself. And as you do so, something stirs within your soul. Something that says, you know what? This book wasn't just written so that Christians could have a hobby. This was written so that people's lives, their eternities could be changed. And in your soul, there's this stirring, not for religious activity, but for personal relationship with the Lord. Thanks to his humility-inducing, time-transcending, life-changing, culture-shaping, outward-facing, hope-inspiring word. You see, you could show up to this church every Sunday for the rest of your life, and this church will not change your life. The pastoral staff at this church, as wonderful as they all are, will not change your lives. Your small group leader, your high school students' D group leader, your fourth graders' truth seeker leader, your kindergartners' kids' point teacher. None of those individuals are going to change your life. The 31-year-old individual who stands before you most Sunday mornings is not going to change your life, but we know the exact source that will, and it is contained within the words of this book. It's the reality of who God is, a clear understanding of who you are, and a certain knowledge that Jesus Christ came so that you could be made right before the Lord. And the pastors and leadership of this this church will give all of ourselves 
to point you to the place where you can find that and then drag ourselves out of the way so that the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, can work powerfully to transform your life. Our goal here is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, the absolute foundation of what we have to do is get people to hear, see, read, understand Scripture, the Word of God, so that they can see the reality of the Lord and His work to redeem humanity through His Son. And then we will get on our knees and pray that the Holy Spirit breaks through powerfully in each and every person's life so that they see the reality of that and their soul declares, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. What changes Judah is not King Josiah. What changes Judah is understanding who God is as he's revealed himself in his word. We're going to end our time together with one final song. I want to just give uh, an encouragement. If, if any of this resonates with you, maybe you've been coming here for quite some time and this has been religious activity for you, I want to encourage you uh, to find someone on our staff or send us an email later in the week or give the church office a call. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to move beyond religious activity and into personal relationship. If you're someone who has a personal relationship, I hope you're investing time in the Word because the Word doesn't just save us. It's also a primary tool in sanctifying us so that we continue to look more and more like Jesus. The reality is that we can't do either of those without hearing understanding, and knowing the word of the Lord. Let's sing together, and then we'll go from here.